0: We're continuing our series through the book of Revelation. I didn't quite finish chapter 14, verse 13 last week, so I will circle back on that verse towards the end of the sermon, but we'll pick up today at chapter 14, verse 14, and all of uh, chapter 15, Revelation chapter 14, verse 14. Then I looked. And behold, a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Well, let us ask God to bless the reading and preaching of His Word. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word as we see this highly symbolic language with many difficult mysteries and many difficult truths, we ask that your Spirit will enable us to receive the truth with clarity and with a focus upon Christ, the Savior and the Judge, the one to whom we will one day have to give an account and we will see with our own eyes. We ask that we will prepare for that meeting even now as we worship you, for Jesus' sake. Amen. As many of you know, one of my favorite things to do as a sort of hobby is is coach soccer, and I'm privileged to be able to coach at my uh, children's school, the the boys' senior team and the girls' senior team. And this past Friday, I went to school to announce who would be on the team. And you can imagine, as everyone gets into the classroom and waits to see who will be on the team, how uh, unbelievably terrifying that must be, not only for them, but for me. Imagine having to say, Yes to some and no to others. And as a volunteer, I mean, at least if you're getting paid for it, uh, it softens the blow a little. But I uh, have a problem, you see. Some of you probably won't believe this, but I'm actually quite a softy on the one hand. And on the other hand, I'm fiercely competitive and I don't even like losing a race up the stairs to my wife or kids. And I will tackle them if I have to. Uh, and so I've got to balance being a softie with wanting to win. And so I did what any self-respecting competitive head coach would do. I didn't cut anybody. Uh, and I'm figuring out a way to make everybody available to play at certain times and all that. And uh, you can criticize me after. I'll accept it. I'll accept it. But I wasn't prepared to say no to someone who wanted to come out and learn how to play soccer. So, that's that. Uh, But, what struck me about that is the actual separation, the public separation of people. No, yes. And that's a horrifying experience. Think about it. Imagine going into a room, and you want to participate in something, and someone is saying to you, no. Someone is saying to you, yes. The chapter that we've just read, indeed, a lot of revelation really is a public separation of the righteous and the wicked. It's a public separation of them in this world, but it is consummated at the final judgment, where it is definitive, where it's final, where there is no changing of mind. There's no appealing to the coach to give me a, a chance. There's no thought of, well, maybe I'll just let everybody in. It is final, it is decisive it is based upon truth, and there will be no arguments. And John uses some very vivid language to illustrate this purpose, especially in verses 14 to 16. He speaks of one like a son of man. And what's interesting about this is I think it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is in particular view here, especially when you see the golden crown on his head, but What's interesting, and this is what trips up a few commentators, is verse 15, because another angel comes out of the temple and calls to one like a son of man to do something. And so some have suggested, well, it doesn't seem fitting for an angel to command the son of man to do something. And I think that's a fair question, or at least concern. The problem is we mustn't understand it as though Jesus is sort of waiting around, not sure what's happening, and then an angel says, oh, you have to go and do this. This is more in the illustration of how one prays before God. We call upon God to do things, not as though we were in authority over God, but that because God has promised to do certain things, we call upon God to do the things that He has promised to do. So when the angel calls upon the one like a son of man to Come out with a sickle. It is a calling upon the Son of Man to do something He has promised to do and will surely do. And that is one of the great aspects of biblical prayer. You are calling upon God to do things God has promised to do. That's actually foremost. Now, what is a little more difficult, I think, is the reaping that takes place because the harvest of the earth is fully Ripe, And so the one who comes swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. The question is, in these descriptions in verse 14 to 16 of the harvest of the earth's grain, and then in chapter 14, verses 17 to 20, the earth's grapevine, are we talking about the same group of people, namely the wicked? So does the Son of Man come and harvest the wicked? And then in verses 17 to 20, harvest the wicked, and just different ways of saying the same thing, or is he harvesting the righteous in the grain analogy and the wicked in the crushing of the wine press analogy now i'm not here to fight with anyone today but i will say i tend to lean to the fact that this is speaking about the harvesting of the righteous versus only the wicked now, some of you may point to Joel chapter 3. You're thinking, Joel chapter 3. I was reading that last night. I came to prepare in a real uh, manner. And Joel chapter 3 will say, Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their evil is great. So the Old Testament background uses the idea of harvesting and also of the wine press. And the context is judgment. However, I tend to think that what is happening here is the idea that the Jews are taking of the time, Joel chapter 3, and think about this. Israel's a tiny nation when Joel was written. The world is a big place. And they are saying that they are going to be responsible, their God, for judging all the nations. That's quite a claim. Imagine being the smallest nation, so to speak, in a a manner of speaking, and you're saying your God is going to judge all the nations. So when Jesus comes to earth, and He claims to be the Messiah, and people marvel at the gracious words that come from His lips, they expect that He's going to bring judgment against Israel's enemies. That's what the Messiah was supposed to do. But then Jesus preaches in Luke chapter 4, and He quotes from Isaiah, and then He says, these words are fulfilled in your hearing, and they are so happy with His sermon. Amen, brother. You are, that's a very fine sermon you've preached today. A little bit of a problem. He keeps on preaching, he goes over half an hour. And lo and behold, he starts to speak about Gentile inclusion. But if you are a Jewish person who's taken Joel chapter 3 to talk about the crushing of the Gentiles, the Romans who are oppressing them, why are you talking about God blessing Gentiles? If you're the Messiah, come and judge the Gentiles. Now the problem was, it wasn't that the Messiah wasn't going to judge. The problem was, in the first instance, the Messiah came to save and to gather in. And one day there would be a judgment. And so the resurrection of the dead, the Jews always believed to be a future end time thing. What Jesus does is he brings the resurrection into the present by his own resurrection. He brings salvation into the present so that the ends of the earth may worship God. So what you see going on here in this chapter, I think, is the idea that based upon Matthew chapter 13 as well, where there's the parable of the weeds and the wheat, and you mustn't pull up the weeds right away in case you pull up the wheat, and one day uh, Christ will come and separate the weeds from the wheat and put the wheat into his barn. That is the salvation of God's people. What you have here is a description of a final end time judgment. So the harvest of the earth's Grapevine is clearly now speaking about the harvest of the wicked. And if you were thinking, "Ah, this reminds me of Isaiah chapter 63, you would be entirely correct. Now, here's another issue. And if you'll just allow me 30 seconds to complain about bad theologians. You may have heard it said that Isaiah chapter 1 to 39 is about, shall we say, judgment and then chapter 40 to 66 is about salvation and that is absolutely false and there's no need to really prove that except to say there's plenty of hope and salvation before chapter 40 but there's also equally plenty of judgment and so and and talk about hell. In fact, Christ gets His language from hell from the later chapters of Isaiah. But in chapter 63, just listen to the way in which Israel is asking, Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bozrah who is splendid in His apparel, marching in the greatness of His strength? And then Yahweh answers, and I believe it is the Son of God who answers, It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save, But then they ask, why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads the winepress? You've come to save? Why are your garments red? Like someone who's treaded the winepress and and grapes have been crushed and splattered everywhere so that you're a bloody mess. Why is that? And he says in verse 3, I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. So in the background of Isaiah chapter 63... There is judgment and salvation, so that finally God says, I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on earth. So God's enemies one day are going to be trampled like grapes in a wine press, and that will have the effect of a crushing blow, but also the effect of intoxication, so that they become drunk. That is what Isaiah chapter 63 is saying. Now, how does this relate to Jesus Christ? It relates to Jesus Christ insofar as Revelation chapter 19 takes this language and appropriates it to the one who is the Word of God, who comes with fine linen. But then in verse 15, From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. That's Joel 3, Isaiah 63. And He will rule them with a rod of iron. And He, that is the Son of God, will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Jesus is going to execute wrath upon People. He comes first as a Savior. He comes first in mercy. He comes first in patience. He comes first in long suffering. He comes first in grace. And He returns in justice. He returns in wrath. He returns in fury. He returns as one who will silence the wicked. But He will not silence His people because they will sing. And so in chapter. 15 verses 1 to 4, you see the idea of victory singing. And victory singing usually is more powerful when the battle has been more intense. I suspect that some of you who uh, play sports may understand this analogy. If you were to play a game and beat the other team 15 to nothing, uh, when the final whistle goes and you've won 15 nothing. Do you know what usually happens? Nothing. It's muted celebration. You might have one crazy kid who runs around and goes crazy, but you you settle him down, you cut him, and you say, go do something else. But... When you're involved in a battle all game long where it's 0-0 and there's, there's so much intensity and it's like a war going on and you score in the final minute to win the game, you see the game end and it's, it's mayhem, it's pandemonium. The Christian faith is meant to be so difficult, so strenuous at times, it's meant to be a real battle so that when the victory singing comes, it's not muted in any way. It's not like, oh, well, you know, this was easy. It was intense. It was difficult. And so they sing the song of Moses. They sing the song of the Lamb, saying, Now, I want you to focus upon these words because this really gives us a good illustration of proper biblical worship. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify Your name? For You alone are holy. All nations will come and worship You, for Your righteous acts have been revealed. This singing right now is what we would call appropriate biblical worship. And why is that? Well, notice this. What are the deeds that we are to call great and amazing? What are they? Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Well, anyone with a little bit of sensitivity to context is going to read what has just been said. And lo and behold, people are singing about what? Not just His salvation, but His judgment. Imagine that. Imagine actually singing about His judgment. Now, I want you to go and you go and download all your favorite Christian contemporary songs and bring them to me, send them. Email, post them, FedEx, I don't care. And tell me, how many of these songs talk about God's judgment upon the wicked? I don't want the love songs. I want how many songs speak of God's judgment upon the wicked? Then I want you to do something else after you've done that. I want you to go to the Psalter and look at all the ones where God's judgment is upon the wicked and send those to me. Now... I don't want to take any cheap shots, but come on. It's right there. Great and amazing are your deeds right after we've just read about things like treading the fury of the winepress of God's wrath. We are so far removed from biblical worship because of what has happened in the 20th century that we don't even know what biblical worship looks like anymore. We feel embarrassed singing songs that would speak about God defeating His enemies We're much more comfortable saying shine Jesus, shine, rather than crush Jesus, crush. But if you look at the book of Revelation, it's not one or the other, it's both. Now, are those deeds righteous? You might say, okay, I grant that the context says, but is this a righteous thing for God to do? And what you find is that the song that we are to sing tells us Just and true are your ways, O King of nations. He is the King of the nations. Therefore, He determines how He will act towards those nations. So what is our response to those deeds? Look at the last part of verse 4. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. That's your response. Who will not fear, O Lord God, and glorify Your name? You are to fear God, glorify His name, and worship. That is your response to those great and amazing deeds. Now, just in case you were thinking, okay, we can relax now. Notice what happens in verses 5-8 to because seven angels receive bowls of wrath. Just look at the language. After this, I looked. And the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came seven angels with seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Do you know my first thought? And I wrote this down when I was preparing this. Is I think John must have suffered from post traumatic stress syndrome after writing this. You're sitting here in the comfort of your chair, and you're thinking, well, this is a little crazy, you know. I might go to that Baptist church down the road, with it not as intense. But John had to see this, it was a vision. He's seeing these things happen. And he's believing these things will happen. And I have to think that, you know, Elijah, he gets all stressed out after his battles with Jezebel. He needs to be refreshed and calmed down. I can't even imagine what it was like for John after this. But then I ask myself another question, why is it that we are so desensitized to things like God's judgment and a future judgment and that we don't really believe these things are going to happen? and i will say i some of you maybe have been to a conference and what happens sometimes at conferences is they sit a bunch of the conference speakers in chairs at the front and they do a q and a session and then what sometimes happens is you end up answering a question what is the greatest problem facing the church today and i hate those questions now because you can't just say something is always the biggest problem, or this is the greatest threat, and things like that. That, I mean, that's why people do it at conferences. They want to know that answer, but life doesn't work like that. It's too complex for those types of answers. But I will say we do need to answer why perhaps we are desensitized to judgment, why we don't see it with the eyes of Scripture that we should, or be as fearful of what God is going to do one day. In fact, I've been uh, helping my wife. She's taking this English course, uh, and it's Pride and Prejudice, and there's an essay she has to write, so we are working on the essay together. Good husband-wife moment, you know. And uh, not being one to uh, admit freely being a Jane Austen fan and reading Pride and Prejudice, I... uh, will decide to forego admitting whether I enjoy it or not. But the one essay was quite interesting because it looks at the function of letters in the book, and I thought, well, we should focus on uh, Darcy's letter to Elizabeth, and if anyone's read it here now, you should be going, ah, yes, 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 you know, look like an intellectual in our midst, ah, yes, that's a good one. There's seven letters. This is a significant letter. And when you look at the letter, I actually reread the letter this morning. But you look at the letter and the scope of the book, what's interesting is how momentous this letter is. Receiving a letter. And Elizabeth has to read it and reread it and reread it because. She's finding things out, not only about Darcy, but actually about herself. And this is where you get all crazy with English people, right? They start to see all these things. That's what I saw. She learns about herself as much as she learns about Darcy. There you go. That's my thesis. Well, Barb's thesis. (laughs) But when you look at how significant this letter is, and then you actually think about today and communication where you're snapping pictures and texting people every day, nobody is excited to receive anything anymore. Imagine getting a letter in the mail from someone who was interested in you and spoke about their characteristics and this and that. You'd probably call the police and ask for a restraining order on them. I'm quite serious. Nobody does that anymore. I'm going to make it a condition, actually, if a young man wants to go out with my daughter, he has to start off by writing a letter and sending it in the mail with stamps on and all that to uh, Reverend Dr. Jones. <laughs> in case any of you are interested, that, that is the first prerequisite. But it was a significant event. It stood out. What I think is happening today is that God's judgments, they're not missing. They're not somehow God's gone on vacation. I think God's judgments are upon this world, are upon this land, are in our midst in various ways. And we can't even recognize them as such. That's what worries me. Is God is actually judging us, and sometimes God's people suffer in the midst of these judgments that are worldwide but even nationwide because sometimes the righteous do suffer with the wicked and we don't even know it we don't even know that we're being judged by the amount of time we give to social media the amount of time we give to falsehood, the amount of time we don't give to the Lord judgment is everywhere but we don't know it and it's like getting a text from someone or an email it isn't a big deal anymore So when it comes to God speaking of a future judgment, I'm sure it will be fine. When it seems as though God is going out of His way to speak in such graphic language to warn us to serve the Lord to seek the Lord, to kiss the Son while He may be found. Imagine just as a sort of hypothetical that you were a person that could not walk, could not eat, could not drink, could not see unless a certain person was within 10 feet of you. And if that person was within 10 feet of you, you could walk, you could see, you could eat, you could drink, you could laugh, you could live your life. But if that person moved outside of 10 feet of you, you would be back to being unable to do anything. Now imagine that person was always there for you, and you got to just live your life as you wished. Do you think over time you wouldn't just become a little bit presumptuous about the fact that that person is enabling you to do everything? Do you not think that over time you may lose your thankfulness so that maybe you're not even thankful at all being what we are? And you see, that's why God has every right to judge at the end of the age. Because we all, whether Christian or non... We all in Him live and move and have our being. In other words, if God wasn't sustaining us right now, we would be lying in outer darkness, unable to laugh, unable to smile, unable to drink, unable to eat, unable to walk, unable to do anything. But God is enabling every single person in this world to enjoy the bounty of His goodness. And so what an effrontery to ignore the God of heaven and earth and somehow think at the end of the age... That you will be able to stand before His Son who actually came at the beginning of time, so to speak, in the fullness of time and laid down His life for sinners. Imagine. God doesn't just send an emissary to go and execute judgment. He sends His Son who first came in peace. Who first came in love. Who first came with a view to mercy and compassion and grace. And so to reject that, but continue to... To steal from God. That is a very heinous thing indeed. But I want you to also notice what got us here in Revelation chapter 14, verse 13. I didn't want to skip this verse because it's so momentous, but last week we didn't have time. John hears a voice. From heaven, saying, Write this: Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. My dad and I have had a few conversations, and usually he's talking about all the tax that he has to pay on everything. Don't worry, I told him to listen to the sermon. And you know what he said? He says, I hope it's better than last week's. Unbelievable. I says, well, no, maybe you weren't paying attention. He says, oh, no, I actually turned, I think, the baseball down so I could listen. So he justified that he was listening. But I digress. He talks about the various taxes, you know, and there's the inheritance tax. Some of you have no idea what we're talking about. That's because you're young and you have no money. But there's a tax for Everything you got to figure out ways to get around it, right? Uh, and I don't plan to take much from my parents because my dad usually tells me about these things after he's worked out for three hours. And so, you know, he's probably got another 50 years left in him. So maybe my kids will get a car or something out of the whole thing. But he was talking to me about how he had a conversation once with a wealthy a uh, businessman who had said to my dad, because he viewed my dad as being successful, Kevin, you have made it to the shore. That is what they say in their culture. You've made it to the shore. Uh, has anyone here made it to the shore? Just curious. Oh, well, let me know after. Uh, he's made it to the shore. And then my dad says, well, you know, Ephraim, I'm going to take it with me. He looked at him. You're going to take it with you? Oh, yes. And then he says, good luck, Kevin. I don't think he meant like, no, that can't happen. I think it was like, well, if you can find a way, that'll be very good. Now, we all know, in a sense, you can't take it with you. You can't. What are you going to do? Wrap yourself in gold and hope that helps you out? You can't take it with you. But I'm not here to tell you to leave money to me, the church, or anyone else. I'm actually saying Christians can take it with them. You can take it all with you. That's the amazing thing about the Gospel. Look at that. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Why? Because we rest from our labors and our deeds follow them. Our deeds will follow us. You don't get to go to heaven because of your deeds. That is anathema. You cannot stand before God and say, look at my deeds. Let me go to heaven. That's wicked But at the same time, those deeds that God has prepared in advance for you to do, those deeds of love, of patience, of kindness, whereby you have looked after others, where you have sought the interest of others before yourself, whereby you've glorified God and you have done things to His name and His glory, those deeds will follow you. You can take them all with you. And you will rest in heaven. And there's a certain sense in which your deeds will continue to work. And how that all looks, I don't know, but your deeds follow you. In other words, the wicked, their deeds follow them. And their deeds are going to be before them forever and ever. There's going to be someone in hell, and they're going to have before their eyes that they slaughtered someone in cold blood. But guess what? There may be ten times more people who are going to have their cell phone before them, remembering how they completely ignored God. And I kind of feel like it's almost worse those holding up a cell phone or those holding up a family member that they were prepared to serve before God or anything that was good in and of itself. Their deeds will follow them. But for the righteous who love the Lord, their deeds will follow them. And those deeds will be held up before the angels and before God, and they will go nowhere. They will always be before us as God crowning his own gifts. That's how you're to understand this. God is crowning His own gifts. Gifts that He has given to you, He is going to crown forever and ever. That is why it is a blessed thing to die in the Lord. Because not only do you die in Christ and rise in Christ, but everything that you did for Christ follows you into glory forever and ever. You will leave everything behind if you're a Christian, and yet you will bring everything with you. And the things that can't ultimately help you will always stay behind. And the things that have helped others will come with you. And that's the glory of the Gospel. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank You for Your Word and ask that we will remember, choose ye this day whom we will serve. And we pray that we will all serve the risen King, Jesus Christ, who came to save who came in peace, who came in love, but will certainly one day come in judgment. The same Christ, the same Savior, the same compassionate One. We pray that we will remember this each day. Amen.